Hello, welcome to another episode of the Grow Street Journal. My name's Francis Hall and I'll be your host as we delve into all things cannabis. For today's episode, I have the immense pleasure and privilege of speaking to Constance Finley. First off, I'd like to say that Constance is an incredible woman, founder and CEO of Constance Therapeutics, a company inspired by her own personal experience with a chronic illness. After nearly dying from the pharmaceuticals prescribed to help alleviate pain and inflammation caused by a rare autoimmune disease, Finley turned to medicinal cannabis for relief. She quickly became fascinated with the science behind the medicinal benefits of cannabis and became determined to make standardised whole plant cannabis extracts that incorporate all of the naturally occurring cannabinoids, terpenes and flavonoids in cannabis and are safe for those with compromised immune systems. This episode is brought to you by Urban Grow. Urban Grow want to revolutionise the cannabis cultivation process for those lucky individuals that can legally grow cannabis at home. What's special about Urban Grow? They're designing a solution that not only makes it easier to keep track of your plant's health throughout their entire grow cycle, it also optimises plant growth using data science and machine learning technologies. By collecting anonymous grow data from all of the users, the solution is able to offer tailored insights throughout the entire grow process from seed to harvest and beyond. What's more, they're designing some very exciting visual ways of documenting and sharing your grow with others. They're currently planning a crowdfunding round, so check them out at urbangrow.io, that's urbangrow.io, where you can sign up for early bird access and be the first to hear about investment opportunities with this exciting new venture. Constance, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the podcast, on the Grow Street Journal podcast today. And I've got to give you a special thank you as well for agreeing to be on a Monday morning. (laughs) <laughs> Much appreciated, Francis. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. And do, do you have any kind of morning ritual, by the way? Oh, dear. You surprised me with that question. Um, <laughs> usually it's wake up as late as possible, get coffee, a latte made as fast as possible, and get through the emails, you know. Um, it's it's a fairly intense life here. Um since cannabis has taken off the way it has and since we became sort of famous, um, it, it's a, it's an intense life of at least six days a week. Nice. That sounds like a good routine to me. Late as possible, <laughs> get the coffee on the go. That's exactly, you're a woman after my own heart there. <laughs> I don't know if I should be so honest, but that is the truth. I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> And so, Constance, you're the founder and the CEO of Constance Therapeutics. Could you tell me a little bit about the business? Sure. Um, We are entering our 10th year. Um, California was, you know, the pioneer in um, legalizing medicinal cannabis back in 1996. So I've actually been legally at this since 2008. Um, we, We are located in San Francisco. And um, lucky to be located here where, you know, cannabis businesses are treated as normal businesses in the city of San Francisco. Um, what happened is that 
back in 2008, I started the company because I was trying to deal with my own very severe medical issues. And um, in doing so, my doctors noticed improvement and they asked me if I would work with some people who were uh, had glioblastoma. And so um, we said, sure, I mean, I can try, I have no idea, never intended to be doing that. And what happened was fairly miraculous, and there was a verified outcome study in 2013 that a famous oncologist said um, that 96% of his stage four oncology patients went into remission um, after following a protocol that I had developed at, at their request. So um, that shook up the world and, and made us very famous. And so um, what happened is because it was in 2013, which seems only five years ago, but really, you know, like a century ago in terms of cannabis awareness, everyone was very afraid of it. And people were calling me um, and saying that this doctor had suggested this, but we were both afraid of each other. I was afraid to talk to them and they were afraid to talk to me. And so so what happened is that I developed a model of coaching them um, about how to deal with cannabis um, so that their angst about cannabis could be dealt with and so that I could be more sure that they were a sincere patient and not some DEA agent or someone else sent to torture the California legal medicinal marketplace people. Wow, that is amazing. So you, you mentioned uh, a verified outcome study, and you said 96% of the patients there went into remission? Yes, it's, it's pretty outrageous, and I want to make it clear that we never made this claim. Um, but uh, Dr. William Forsyth of um, the 20th Century Wellness Clinic um, did. Uh, he said that of the patients that he suggested they try cannabis extracts, that those who came to me, 26 out of 28 of them went into remission. And he then um, released that study in 2015 at an oncology, an integrative oncology conference in Reno, Nevada. And he said at that time that seven. 72%, I believe it was, of the people were still alive from that original um, verified outcome study. So that, that's what prompted um, the world's awareness, really, of cannabis extracts, because previous to this happening, there had only been Rick Simpson. And, he, you know, he had been a brave person, but he developed a highly toxic process um, that, you know, reportedly saved a lot of people. But when I looked into it, I was pretty horrified at the lack of professionalism or cleanliness or lack of toxicity. So, you know, we were the first to really do this seriously and professionally. And you mentioned the, uh, the ailments that the, the patients had. Could you just mention that one more time again? I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I, I won't just make a complete fool out of myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and no need. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen so many of these patients that I've become good at pronouncing it. Um, it's, it's called glioblastoma, and it's a virulent form of brain cancer. And um, the reason everyone's attention was so riveted when Dr. Forsyth said this is that there's no known cure for glio. 
And um, and I don't know that there is yet, but what we have seen is that many, many people with glio went into remission. And so at least life prolonging has occurred multiple times. Um, we worked with all kinds of cancer. He basically sent us any of his patients that were stage four second occurrence and had no hope from any conventional treatment. But we never um, encouraged patients to, to um, make any choice about their medical um, treatment. We suggest that's between their doctor and them. And so most of these people weren't on a lot of other treatments because there wasn't any probability of success. But they were under his care, and most were on something. Okay, and, and before cannabis came along as a potential uh, medicine that, that can go a long way to, to helping with these patients, um, what would be the kind of standard practice that, that, that doctors would be suggesting? I mean, you, you said that there's not much that they can do. Is it really just sort of trying to, to improve their quality of life? Is that all that can be done? Yeah, I think in general that was that was the people that I was dealing with. Some of them were in hospice um, and most were thinking they would be in hospice very soon. Um, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I believe from what I understand that most of these people were put on integrative approaches and palliative approaches only. Uh, some were still on low-dose chemotherapy, if I recall correctly. Okay, and what was your motivation for, for starting on this path? Did you always have in mind that, that you thought cannabis was something that may have these medicinal properties or was there some sort of other catalyst? Well, you know, oddly enough, I was one of those people who thought that medicinal cannabis laws were kind of silly. Um, I, you know, being in California, I'd been around legal cannabis for 12 years and I found it to be um, sort of something I wanted to hold my nose around. Um, you know, uh, it, it was not an attractive um, situation in my view. I thought it should be legal completely, but I thought to call it medicinal was a wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of designation that it was really about getting high. And I, I remember saying, well, if you want to get high, just be honest about it. So I had a rather jaundiced view, and I did not expect cannabis to be the powerhouse of herbal medicine that I found her to be. Um, I, I had to be talked into it over a long period of time, and it was for my own self. Um, friends kept encouraging me. I had been an invalid for about 15 years after a successful career in the financial industry. I had syndicated low-income housing in California with the federal tax credit program and loved what I did, um, created great housing for the working poor, uh, helped fund that for nonprofits. So then I just hit a wall and fell apart and it took about 10 years to get a diagnosis. But in that time I was in isolation and unable to drive or go out to dinner or anything else. Finally, I was diagnosed as having ankylosing spondylitis with some fairly major complications um, in repetitive stress disorder and stuff. But basically it was a rheumatic, rheumatic type disease. Um, and it's, it's a, one of the negative spondyluropathies in, um, in rheumatoid arthritis family of diseases. 
And they used to think it was rare in women, but now they know that half of the people who get it um, are women. But um, at any rate, it took a long time to be diagnosed, and I was in really severe discomfort and pain and isolation as a result of it. So I um, I had finally found a famous um, rheumatologist who accurately diagnosed me after 10 years. And then we started trying the various drugs that you use in that condition that are basically trading quality of life for length of life. They're the same drugs that cancer patients are given in some um, many, many instances. So I was put on a series of drugs called the biologics. Um, the copay on those drugs is about 4000 a month. And that gives you some indication of, of what's going on. Uh, they're delivered by IV in the doctor's office or by injection. And um, when I f- tried the last one that I was given to try, I tried Humira twice, and we weren't certain I would live for about six years. And um, it, my, my body fat was down to 14%. I weighed 99 pounds, wasn't able to eat very much for about six years. And it was during that period of time that I turned to cannabis. My gosh, that must have been a really tough time for you. So, I'm, I mean, I'm very glad uh, that your your friends did manage to <laughs> to convince you. Um, the first few times, then, it must have been a kind of strange experience when you just, when you made that decision to to turn to cannabis. Um, and what was it like? Was it your approach one of um, trial and error experimentation? Yeah, exactly, Francis, and that's how that's how it led to what I eventually did. Is at that time I was lucky enough to have um, you know really world famous dispensaries in my neighborhoods. I mean, within a driving distance, I could go to Harborside or Berkeley Patients Group, and so it was available to me. It was intimidating to go to those places, and what existed at the time were simply flower products. There were no extracts in the dispensaries. No one was making them. Um, You know, as I said, only Rick Simpson was around. So all that was available to me was to go and find high quality flour or some edibles, which weren't of very high quality nature in general. And you couldn't know who grew um, the bud. Um, You couldn't know which strain it was. We can recall that at that time, Arno Hazekamp at um, Bedrocan at that time in the Netherlands had done a study in in California and found that 60% of the flower was identified incorrectly by the grower who brought it into the labs. So what I'm trying to draw a picture here of is of a world where you could access cancer cannabis, but with no, absolutely no reliability about what you were getting. So if I found something that I thought helped and the only way I could use it was to uh, smoke it in a joint or a pipe or a bong, um, the vape pens didn't exist, um, and you could make crude edibles at home. People were starting to talk about that, but that made no sense to me. I didn't know why you'd take something and put it in flour and sugar and try to figure out the effect of it. So what happened to me is that I tried smoking it and I found that if I were diligent about smoking it every day, I had actually some effect that was positive. 
Now, you have to understand that in the context of my disease, we had tried probably hundreds of drugs and um, gotten to the most serious of all before we saw any effect. So to provide even an incremental effect from smoking at in the evening was a really significant finding. And it started to change my mind. Um, and so I said, well, if this is providing some relief when these drugs that cost thousands of dollars can't, how could I make it strong enough? And how could I make it something that I could find again? And so that started me on my quest of growing it in my wine cellar. Um, I actually um, took out 100 cases of wine and started growing wine, I mean, growing cannabis there. And um, then the task was to, um, so once I started growing it, I could know what it was. I could um, grow it the same again and again by cloning. And then I started trying to standardize it and to make it strong enough to help my disease. Amazing. So the initial experience you identified straight away kind of wasn't optimal in terms of not knowing what you were getting, the potency, the lineage of the particular strain. I mean, it sounds like the, the market was predominantly geared towards uh, the, the leisure market, right? Right, while calling itself medicinal cannabis, but that's all there was at that time. You know, walking in and, and finding um, lots of strains of fancy flower and hash and keef. That was about it. Wow. Okay. And you you, you touched on a, on a couple things. I just um, I'd like to touch on. So you said that the the cannabis it provided you with relief. What do you mean by that? I meant that I could sleep better at night, um, which is 50% of most seriously ill people's issue, and that over the time of using it, as I developed the extracts, when I learned how to make those and figured it out by studying the internet on, on herbal solutions, etc., when I began making the extracts, I saw really significant pain relief. And um, at first, it was just like, wow, I could bear to get through the day. This is really better than normal. And then over a few months, some of the swelling started to recede. Um, and, and that's when I and my doctors just became incredibly intrigued because we didn't expect this. I, I had no idea um, that this plant from a process that I developed um, – could actually have more significant impact than the 68 drugs at a time they had me on at one point. That must have been an incredibly uplifting and profound experience. You can see why I became passionate about it. I can, I can. And you mentioned some of the, uh, the, the drugs that you were prescribed to, to treat this illness. You said a very interesting turn of phase. I really like this turn of phase. You said you're kind of trading off length of life for quality of life. What were exactly. some of the negative side effects that you were experiencing uh, with the, the drugs that you were prescribed and you were trying? Oh, very serious side effects. Um, well, before they put me on the biologics, they, they make you go through every DMARD and through every NSAID. It's the drugs that the rheumatological community knows well. And um, I failed all of those drugs because of severe stomach pain. 
um, for, for instance, with Celebrex, um, I could get a tiny bit of relief that I actually could notice. So it would be a moderate amount. Um, but in three days, my stomach made it impossible for me to sleep or, you know, focus on anything else because of the pain. Then they moved me up to things like methotrexate, um, and in pill form, I was just utterly miserable and it didn't do much. So then they had me inject it in my stomach once a week. And so, um, you, you give yourself this needle in the stomach, um, and you know that for the next 24 hours, you're going to be extraordinarily sick. It was as if I had a very bad case of the flu, um, every week. So um, they considered that a fair trade-off, um, given that you can die of the inflammatory process from a heart attack. That's the most. That's what happens to most women with rheumatoid arthritis and my disease. But it wasn't a very fun way to live. So then, when they moved me up to the biologics in hope of gaining, um, you know, some meaningful symptom relief. Um, I actually did start to get relief, and let me just describe a tiny bit. What you do is you go and you sit in a chair for a couple of hours, and you have an IV, and um, you're given um, this this drug, and um, it, um, it it impacts you at a very deep level. It it decreases your T cells. So what happened for me with Remicade is that I actually started to feel better, and I was really jubilant. It had taken months, and I was on the highest um, dose in the practice by my weight, and um, and I thought I was going back to work because I had been severely disabled, and and then my skin started falling off, and if I touched the edge of the table, I would get a wound and it wouldn't heal, and so the next time my rheumatologist saw me, he was like, you know, frantic about getting me off of it immediately. But it didn't stop him from putting me on a bunch of others. And um, the Humira basically destroyed my gut. Um, I couldn't, if I put something in my mouth, I had immediate um, uh, explosive diarrhea. And I could eat a few bites a, a day. That was That was about it. But, you know, going on and on about those things is really just to say, um, you know, thank God for whole plant extract medicine. Yeah. So let's let's get back onto the onto the whole plant medicine. I mean, I'm sure a lot of us know today the the flower of the plant as the, the bud that is kind of famous and you know, people like to smoke and whatnot. Um, what, what's the the difference between using the whole plant and using just the flower. So let me clear that up if I could, Francis, because people in cannabis use the word whole plant erroneously. Um, in herbal tradition, where plants have been studied, you know, for thousands of years, whole plant refers to the flower. Um, so um, in cannabis, typically people have smoked the bud recreationally and they have made, if anything, some sort of crude extract out of the trim that they said was a compassionate gift to six people. And when I came along to this, it seemed the opposite of what should happen is why shouldn't the sick people get the flower? And the, um, you know, the other guys can play with the trim if they want. They're trying to get high. But for the people who really have a need to see what the plant can do, a plant pushes out everything it has to give in its flower. That is where you will find the most compounds and the most varied compounds and where everything that exists in the plant is. So 
for, I don't know if it is ignorance or it, it is greed, um, cannabis people tend to call stuffing the whole plant or using trim as whole plant. But in the sense of medicinal, that's not correct. So we use only the tightly trimmed flower in our um, medicinal um, preparations for the, um, you know, for, for uh, doctor referred patients. All right, I see. Okay, thank you very much for clearing that up. Um, and it, so in terms of this process of you starting out growing plants in your wine cellar, which is just fantastic. Um, and you, you said it was very much kind of experimentation. Have you noticed that there are um, big differences in, in medicine between, let's say, two different kind of strains? Does it, does it really have a big difference or um, are there only small similarities between the different types of the plant? We found when we started taking cannabis very, very seriously and recording the effects and uh, potentiating it by making it much stronger in extracts so that the differentiations are more clear, we found that there's really quite radical differences. Um, so later, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but um, last March I was um, speaking in Israel at the Canatech conference and um, Dr. Meiri, Daddy Meiri spoke there and his work is um, showing very in, in hard science um, that there are very dramatic differences between the strains and not only between the strains but between strains grown differently, between strains extracted differently. Um, so I, I won't take us too far afield but I, I would tell you that his work is in vitro studying brain cancer and he's able to take apart the 412 to 500 bioactive compounds in the plant and he's able to isolate which thing, which terpene, which cannabinoid, which minor cannabinoid has an effect in a Petri dish on a brain tumor and finding radical differences. So that what we experienced here at Constance Therapeutics um, makes so much sense now. And the fact that, that I standardized the genetics was, was critical. We haven't been able to do that perfectly in this legal environment and with our capital uh, abilities, but we have paid attention to what matters, which is first of all the strain, how it's grown, under what conditions, and, and then um, how you extract it. That's, this is where it gets so interesting for me because it's you know, we're, we're almost at the tip of the iceberg with this. Um, it's exactly. it is absolutely fascinating. You touched on uh, the the legality there, and uh, we we've discussed how you're quite fortunate to be from um, a state where you are actually free to go and and buy some cannabis from a dispensary. So I know that at the state level that it, it's legal. Um, but at a federal level, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but does cannabis still remain, a, is it a controlled substance or is it still illegal in some form of capacity at a federal level? Oh, it's very illegal at a federal level. It's still a Schedule One drug, which says there is no medical efficacy whatsoever and that it is highly harmful and highly addictive, more so than heroin, which is Schedule Two in our beautiful country. And I think you guys are probably aware, no matter where you are in the world, that Trump and um, Sessions, his attorney general, have been uh, very adamant 
um, that cannabis is federally illegal um, and have scared a lot of people into backing down and taking progress here in the States. Um, I was involved with Canadian um, partners attempting to license my patented standardized extracts for medicinal research in um, in Calgary and um, and and around there in Alberta. And when um, Mr. Sessions began saber rattling a few months back, um, the Toronto Exchange, where they are listed, um, said anyone who has anything to do with cannabis in countries where it is federally illegal will be delisted from the Toronto Exchange. So I experienced personally, my entire company experienced the effects of, uh, of Mr. Sessions' um, uh, behavior. But we don't feel fearful about it because we are the exception that proves the rule. We don't have a single recreational um, patient we haven't had in 10 years and um, we deal only with the seriously ill for the first several years, only those referred by physicians. So we're not thinking that we're his target, but it slows progress. Absolutely. It's, it's pretty scary to think that. And it, it defies belief. And uh, let's, let's not go into it too much because the more we talk about it, I, I think I can just feel my brain cell count dropping. Um. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hang on, my dogs are being noisy. We'll stop them. Um, uh, yes, the air gets sucked out of the room. And, the, and everything is happening so positively that I see this as kind of the last hurrah of this entire movement. Um, because of, of how seriously we've taken what we do, um, we are recognized around the world and people in Canada and Israel and um, Western Europe and um, South Africa and Australia, etc., cetera, are, um, are talking with us very seriously and signing with us to license our products because of the efficacy that they've seen. So um, the most exciting of all, Francis, is that Tetra Biopharma has um, taken a, an R&D license on our um, extracts and are putting them into FDA-approved trials at McGill University in Canada. So I, I, never, I never knew if I would ever get to the point of having my extracts in FDA-approved research, but it is now true. That's amazing. That is a huge achievement. Well done. Thank you so much. So fast forward through to today, could you give me a brief sense of how you're helping people today in terms of what may a patient go through um, from the first time that they hear or read about Constance Therapeutics? Well, we have, as I mentioned earlier, we have um, focused on a coaching methodology where that we help people unfamiliar with cannabis learn how to take serious amounts of it. Um, and so um, basically what has traditionally someone has reached out to us either by calling or by filling out a contact um, form on the Internet. Used to, it was just people emailing 
mailed to me, but now, of course, we have web and and, uh, info accounts. So we get back to them within 24 hours in our normal way of doing business and um, meet with them personally to make a delivery Um, because we have always been direct farmer to patient, as it was called here in California. That's how the original proposition foresaw things. Dispensaries were uh, were not even thought of when when, uh, the people passed Prop 215. But they rapidly grew up. We have not sold our things, our medicine through dispensaries because we felt it required specialized knowledge and and that it was too strong for people to deal with without being coached. Um, now we are going to release products now that there are regulations in California and legal adult use. We're going into a wholesale rollout so that people will be able to access our products in their neighborhoods through dispensaries. Um, and additionally, we'll be also working with um, CBD products from Farm Built Hemp so that we can ship globally some products with at least partial benefits that the THC products have. Amazing. That's very exciting. You mentioned that you have a direct relationship with the patient. Where do you see yourself sitting um, in relation to a patient-doctor relationship? Do you see yourselves um, replacing it or alongside? Oh, absolutely not replacing it. How I originally saw us was as a cannabis compounding pharmacy. And Francis, my my thought was that working with the plant and learning what it can do is to work with doctors and patients and to become the specialist in the knowledge of that plant as a pharmacist, as a specialist in knowledge of synthetically produced pharmaceutical drugs. So um, I felt that we were holding the hands of the patients and the physicians until the physicians themselves were educated enough and until the patients were less afraid. And so, you know, uh, hopefully someday uh, Constance Therapeutics is a compounding pharmacy of cannabinoid and herbal um, medicine um, made under FDA approval. Okay. Constance, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and I wish you every success for the future. Thank you so much, Francis. Thank you so much for your interest. And we wish you in in the UK good luck in in moving forward on uh, exactly cannabis 